Good morning and welcome to Ursa's podcast series. In this podcast, as you know, we get to explore topical economic issues and see how they affect our lives here in South Africa. We get to speak to experienced and knowledgeable people in the field. I'm your host, Margot G, and with me today is none other than David Folks, a senior economist at the South African Reserve Bank. I'm so excited about today's topic. This is an interesting time for monetary policy. The uncertainty and global scale of the COVID-19 pandemic is testing the resilience of economies around the world, much like financial crisis of 2008. With this crisis comes change, and today we will be reflecting on what this means for South Africa's monetary policy. Thank you for joining us, David. What a pleasure to have you with pleasure. us. Pleasure, thanks for having me. It's great. So, yeah, so before we get into the heart of today's topic, we'd like to know a little bit more about you. What drew you to the field of monetary policy? You know, I, um, I was very interested in economic policy. It seems to be that sweet spot where you feel like you're making a difference uh, and it's an interesting job. Um, you know, you don't want to be the sort of person who winds up in investment banking or working on the East Coast where you get paid <laughs> a lot of money, but goodness knows your uh, social impact's pretty low. So I was interested in economic policy. Uh, could have been the Treasury, could have been the Reserve Bank. I ended up at the Reserve Bank. And that's why monetary policy. It's been very, very engaging. I've been there since 2013. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah, I think it's definitely a very influential position. And I think a lot of people take for granted the work that people are doing there. We just, these things are happening. Our money is where it is. And um, we don't always know the intricacies behind it. But over the past few years, we have noticed our South African economy contracting. And especially now with the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown, things have almost come to a standstill. And the Reserve Bank has played a very important role in trying to stimulate the economy. And I think we've been doing it very well. One way it has done this has been through lowering the repo rate. According to the governor's recent speech, the repo rate is now at 375 basis points, which is lower than it has been for a very long time, and actually negative in real terms. What does this mean? Well, you know, we cut the repo rate very aggressively when we realized how big the coronavirus crisis was going to be. As the governor pointed out, you know, that 275 uh, basis points of cuts is larger than most emerging markets have done. Uh, negative in real terms just means it's lower than inflation. Uh, you know, you take the most recent inflation print was, uh, I think, 4.1%, 3.75 is lower than that. We're about to get a new inflation print this afternoon, so we'll see where that is. Uh, but basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to set monetary policy in a very stimulatory way because we think the economy is so weak. Uh, and we think the setting we've got now is extremely stimulatory, although I'm sure we can quibble a little bit about exactly which side of inflation it is, or you should use expected inflation, should you use the latest inflation print, what have you. Uh, and we'll continue to fine-tune this thing as we go forward. Yes, and I suppose there's a lot of uncertainty, so the iterative approach matters. And, yeah, um, so that's actually important. Um, I mean, what the Monetary Policy Committee did is they knew it was a huge shock. So they moved very aggressively, uh, despite the uncertainty. And they moved, you know, in March, and then they did an emergency MPC. And then they did another 50 basis points in the subsequent scheduled MPC. Then they got to that point where they start to say, okay, now we want to see some data. We want to get a sense of how right this is. So you don't want to be paralyzed by the uncertainty. There was definitely enough information to act aggressively. You then want to fine tune once you get more information later on. Yes, yes, and rightfully so. And if we follow the news internationally, there has been a lot of talk about quantitative easing. It's definitely the buzzword. What exactly is this? I mean, a lot of countries are talking about it, trying to implement it. And how does it work? 
Right, great question. <laughs> uh, you know, everyone wants to talk about quantitative easing. So, I mean, lots of countries are implementing it and they're implementing it perfectly successfully. The ones who are implementing it successfully have very particular characteristics. Uh, what's really confusing people is what the emerging markets are doing. And that's where we are and that's where all the confusion is. So the straightforward, plain vanilla case for quantitative easing is you've got this monetary policy tool. You know, for us, it's the repo rate. Other countries call it other things. But it's, it's the short-term interest rate that banks pay to borrow from the central bank. Uh, now, normally, you can just use that. You increase it, you lower it, depending on your economic conditions, and that's your policy tool. Unfortunately, lots of countries have hit zero on this tool. Then they've got a problem, because now they can't change the price at which banks come and borrow from them. So they have to change something else because they still want to change things. They're still missing their mandates. They're not hitting their inflation targets or whatever. So then instead of changing prices, they try and change quantities instead. Okay. That's why we call it quantitative easing. Uh -huh. So instead of saying you know, we're now changing the interest rate from 1% to half a percent, you say we're keeping the interest rate at zero and we're expanding the supply of bank reserves by whatever, 200 billion pounds or dollars, take your pick. Uh, so you start targeting quantities instead of prices, qualities. Okay, very interesting. And the implications on inflation, are they different with that? Well, in the sort of standard story, uh, you know, what you're trying to do is, uh, because you've hit zero on short-term interest rates, you want to put some extra stimulus into the economy. You know, this is the situation where you're missing your inflation target from below. So you know you've got short-term rates at zero, but you can see that longer-term rates are still above zero there are still positive interest rates further out on the yield curve. You know, people still have to pay a positive amount to pay for one year or five years or 10 years. And so if you're a central bank who wants to put some more stimulus into the system, well, you can try and reduce those interest rates. Uh, and, you know, as you do this, you'll be buying all these assets. You know, for example, you'll go and buy government bonds at the five-year point on the curve, and that'll push down rates for five-year instruments. Uh, and that'll give you some stimulus through traditional channels. Uh, that any other monetary policy would work through. Uh, it's also quite a nice signal to everyone that you intend to keep an easy stance for a while because you'll be piling up all these bank reserves. It's not something you do if you just thought low rates were there temporarily. Uh, and these policies have indeed managed to give really stupendously low interest rates. You know, we've seen entire yield curves for major economies being negative. This is something you know, economic textbooks only ever contemplate as a kind of science fiction outcome. But, you know, it happened. <laughs> Germany could borrow at negative rates for very long time periods. It's amazing. Very, very interesting. But now in the governor's speech, he mentioned several things. He mentioned asset purchase, quantitative easing, and then the zero low bound, which you've touched on. Which policies is the Reserve Bank currently using now? And how is this different to quantitative easing? Right. So we've done a whole lot of things with our balance sheet, in addition to moving uh, interest rates, which is what I described at the start, just cutting the repo rate, yes. the traditional tool. Uh, those things include, you know, one, we tried to make a lot more accommodation available to banks. Uh, financial markets were really in difficult circumstances worldwide. Markets were seizing up all over the show. There was a massive sudden stop underway, one of the biggest we've ever seen. Uh, and banks were worried that they wanted to make sure they had a lot of cash on hand. Uh, and to make sure that everyone could feel safe about this, we made it very easy for banks to come and borrow at us. Normally, we really do weekly auctions. But what we did instead was make money available every single day through a couple of facilities. Uh, and in March, banks took out that accommodation pretty enthusiastically. I think the number was around 85 billion at the peak. Uh, and then as conditions calmed down, they were happy to give it back again. And this number came down. So there's that set of policies. 
Another thing we've seen is that the government bond market has had all sorts of liquidity problems. So trading's been very thin at different segments. You get very big bid-ask spreads. Uh, you get very small amounts of trading, moving prices a whole lot. Uh, and you know, going back hundreds of years, central banks have not enjoyed it when you get liquidity breaking down in sovereign bond markets. Uh, so we've been intervening there as well by buying bonds on the secondary market. Uh, and I think you know, we've been buying something like 10 billion rand a month, give or take a little bit, uh, with a little bit at the end of March as well. Uh, so I think we're on about 30 something billion rands worth of purchases so far. Wow. Uh, and yeah, those are the headline policies. There have also been some uh, some bank supervision policies to make to give some guidance on how banks should treat people who can't pay back their debts, but only because of coronavirus and their businesses or you know their personal accounts will be fine afterwards. We don't want to just say that those people have defaulted and mark them up as bad accounts. And so there's some other guidance like that uh, to help the financial system get through this and keep on supplying credit. Okay, very interesting. And when I listen to you speak and I reflect on what I studied at university, it almost seems like two different scenarios, um, especially, you know, especially if we look at the elementary theory of um, the fractional reserve system. How relevant is that to our policy nowadays in South Africa? Yeah, I'm afraid this has confused people. The textbooks tell you a story about central banking and money um, and the money multiplier, which is sadly false. <laughs> uh, and I'm not the first person to observe this. Uh, in fact, I must be about the hundredth person to observe this. Nonetheless, this thing is still in the textbooks. Uh, so how the textbook story works is the central bank creates a small amount of base money, reserve money. And this is described as being very high powered because in a fractional reserve banking system, banks can lend out most of this money and then it comes back to them through deposits and then they can lend out a very large proportion of that money and so on and so forth. So this multiplies up enormously. And this is meant to be an issue because then if you create more central bank reserves, uh, you will get correspondingly vastly more credit extension. Uh, and that's where inflation in the story is meant to come in. But okay. it really doesn't work like that. Uh, the easy way to understand this is just to realize in the South African context, for years we've operated what's called a money market shortage. That means this base money that we create, there's not enough of it in the market to satisfy banks' requirements. So they have to come to the reserve bank to get the extra money, we then create that extra money and we can tell them exactly what the price of that, that's gonna be because they have to come to us for it. No one else can create this stuff. It's a monopoly of the central bank. And that's how we implement the repo rate. We charge them whatever repo rate we pick for that money. And that's literally what the repo is. It's the price of borrowing from the central bank. Uh, and then, you know, uh, you know, because we've kept this money completely unchanged, the shortage for years, you should have seen no credit extension if the story is true. But, you know, credit's been growing at four or 5% a year. So it's obviously not the case that you start off with a base money uh, number and then you multiply that up by your fractional reserve banking system. And as soon as you change the base, that's what allows credit extension. Actually, you know, banks do credit extension based on what interest rates are and what their risk assessment is and what their risk appetites are. Uh, and most money in an economy is created by banks. It's not created by the central bank. The central bank only really does the balances which sit on uh, the commercial banks and the government's accounts with the central bank and the notes and coins you see in your pocket. Everything okay. else, your, your account with Standard Bank or NetBank, whoever, that's, that's private money. It's not a central bank liability. And yes, that is very different to, to what, we, what we hear. And when reflecting on the governor's speech, he also spoke about the deposit rate being set at 200 basis points below repo, which functions as the floor for the system. And he talks about it being a sterilization instrument. Could you perhaps explain the mechanism behind that briefly? Sure. 
Oh, this is crucial. So this is where it gets really confusing when we start talking about emerging markets doing QE when they're not at the zero lower bound. You know, at the start, I said that the policy rate is just the price of getting hold of bank reserves, the, the price that our banks, commercial banks pay to borrow from the central bank. Uh, so, you know, when you do QE, you start changing the quantities of these things. You're not changing the price anymore because you hit zero. Now, here we are, we don't have a zero price. We still, if we want to, we can cut interest rates. We have 375 basis points of cuts we could do before we hit zero, which is quite a lot of firepower still. It's more than we've done so far. Uh, but because we're doing these other balance sheet policies I described, we are actually creating more bank reserves. You know, this is freshly created money that we provide as accommodation to banks or that we use to go and buy these government bonds. So now you're in a funny place. You've got a price for these things, which is above zero, and you're changing the quantities. Now, by itself, if you change the quantities like this, you will start to affect the price. You can think of this as like any kind of econ 101 supply and demand kind of curve. The more bank reserves you pump into the system, the more the price changes. The only time that stops is when you hit zero, which is the advanced economy situation. But we're obviously not there. Now, what this means is you can still go and do these balance sheet things, like buying government bonds to solve liquidity problems, like providing accommodation to banks. You just have to have some tools to make sure that they don't change the price. Uh, and the sterilization instruments are the things that allow you to mop up the extra rands as needed to keep okay. that price where the MPC has set it. In other words, to keep the repo rate where the MPC wants it to be. Uh, now, how the system works at the moment, uh, and this is probably going to change with time, but how it works at the moment is we have this lower deposit rate. If banks want to give money back to the Saab, then we'll pay them a certain amount. But it's 200 basis points below repo, so it's quite a disincentive. And there is a disincentive because we actually want banks to lend it to each other. The yes, problem is if we yes. create vastly more bank reserves, they're not going to want them. So these things are going to pass around the different banks, pushing the price lower and lower until you hit the deposit rate, uh, which would be a de facto easing a monetary policy by about 200 basis points. Yes. This is why the quantity and the price kind of play off each other and why it's okay. such a weird situation to do something like QE at positive interest rates. Yes, okay, that, that really clarifies that. And um, then one question back to QE, just because I know it is such a buzzword. Why is it so controversial? And what is the actual cost to the economy of using quantitative easing? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, two great questions. So the cost is this. One of the costs is that you have to go and pay the sterilization. There are some people out there who think this is free money. Uh, some people are writing in the policy space and also some people who... Uh, I think of making policy and look at the Saab and think, you know, these guys can give me the money, I can bail out the SOEs, I can run a huge fiscal deficit and I can do it indefinitely. Uh, and they probably haven't realized that we would have to pay these sterilization costs uh, okay. in order to make sure that the repo stance stays where it's meant to be, to whatever it needs to be to control inflation. Now, if we give up on that, you know, if we do create these bank reserves and we don't sterilize, then you can indeed print up an awful lot of money but that's where the inflation risk is really going to come in because now you've effectively decided to push your repo rate down to the minimum, uh, you know, to zero or wherever, you know, because you can't sterilize it, right? So you can't use the deposit rate anymore. So ultimately you create enough of these things, it's going to go to zero. That's probably going to be inflationary. So you've got to figure out which of these things you want to do. Do you want to go the inflationary direction or do you want to go the sterilization cost direction? Uh, okay. Now, you know, the point the governor made in his speech is the situation where, we buy government bonds at par. So it's free money to government, which is what some people have asked us to do. And, you know, there are texts out there. You can easily Google them and find people saying this is free money. Uh, now, the slightly more refined version of this is 
you say, okay, you're going to go and buy this debt on the secondary market. So it's going to pay you whatever, say 9%, but you only have to sterilize it repo. So that gives you a nice profit margin left. Uh, and that's fine. You can do that. What the literature has long said about this is this is exactly the same thing as government just issuing debt very short term. It's got okay. exactly the same implications for the public sector balance sheet. It's precisely the same operation. Treasury goes to the market and says, you know what, I want to borrow overnight or I want to borrow for one week or one month at a rate that's pinned down as very low by monetary policy, as if the central bank buys treasury debt and then issues short-term debt and gives the money to treasury like that and then rolls it over every day. Uh, so you can do it like that if you really want, but it turns out to be identical to a fiscal policy maneuver that they're actually doing right now anyway. Very, very interesting. So it seems that sterilization is the also just as topical these days, <laughs> more ways than one. But um, thank you so much for thank you so much for this. I feel like I could talk about this for hours. Um, it is definitely one of the most I find one of the most interesting parts of economics, especially at the moment. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you would like to say to our listeners today? I think it's great that people are engaging in this debate. The term is causing any amount of confusion. Uh, actually, a lot of EMs are involving in different kinds of asset purchases to keep financial markets functioning, uh, to maintain financial stability. I think whether or not we call it QE is turning into this terrible debate, but actually it's kind of confusing. Pretty much all the emerging market central banks that we know about are doing it for about the same reasons. Uh, you know, the Indonesians are calling all sorts of things QE that we wouldn't call QE. Uh, Brazil initially came out and said they now have a QE policy and they changed the legislation, but then the governor said, oh no, we don't want to do it. And it turns out they've got exactly the same thinking we've got. Uh, pretty much the only EM who's actually doing this is Chile and they have hit the zero lower bound. They've okay. got interest rates down to the point. I don't think they can cut them anymore. So I think before anyone gets too excited about saying, why isn't the Saab doing QE? Everyone else is doing it. It's really helpful to go and look at what everyone else is doing and what they're calling it. and you'll find that actually our policies look about as aggressive as those by other well-regarded credible central banks out there. Uh, and, you know, we're happy to be in that company. And I think, you know, our policies all look pretty similar. Thank you so much. It's always good to have that context. And like you said, this is a very technical and confusing issue for many. And I hope we have shed some light on the issue. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, for more updates on our podcast, please stay posted with our social media platforms. This is your host, Margot G from the Ursa podcast series. Till next time. Cheers. Thanks, Margot.